Uh, Today we'll be exploring Psalm 85. The psalm is credited to the sons of Korah. Uh, if you recall, I did a sermon a couple years ago about the sons of Korah, but I think it's appropriate to bring up again here that uh, in number 16, we're informed that the sons of Korah had this rebellion along with some others. They were kind of rebelling against Moses and Aaron and ultimately God himself. Uh, This leads to a scene where Moses essentially looks at them and says, this is how you know that what I'm doing is of the Lord, that he has sent me to do all this, and it's not of my own making. If if, if it is of my own making, let them all die of natural deaths. All the people that are in rebellion, let them die of natural deaths. But it's of the Lord. May the earth swallow them alive for treating the Lord with such content. Then instantly, that's what happens. The earth opens up, it swallows them whole, and surrounds the, Israel, the surrounding Israelites like flee in terror. Like the ground just opens up, swallow these rebellious people uh, who are rebelling against God, who had lack of faith that the work of Moses was of God. And then this fire from God consumes 250 men with burning incense. God judged those who turned against him in act of rebellion and purified his people. But he still had a purpose and a plan even for the line of Korah. We learn later on in Numbers 26, 1 Chronicles, and 1 Samuel that God spared the young sons of Korah. We learn that later, seven generations, the prophet Samuel is of the line of Korah, the Korahites, became great military warriors for King David. They were doorkeepers at the tabernacle, and notably in context of today's sermon, they were great worship leaders. They were great worship leaders in the tabernacle with 11 psalms being attributed to them, of which Psalm 85 is one, and it's my humble joy to spend time in it together this morning. It is my hope this morning as we explore Psalm 85 and the historical, what God has to say for us today through it, And that ultimately we see that Psalm 85 points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's also my prayer that we hear from the Word of God a desperate prayer this morning. The prayer of a psalmist to God who centers on remembrance, repentance, revival, restoration, while boldly declaring that the good, faithful, loving, righteous God hears us, speaks to us. And God desires to speak to us. He is not distant or far. He is right here. He is right now, and he desired to speak to us today through his word. All right, so Psalm 85. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all of their sin. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Oh, sorry. I skipped a verse. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Will thou be angry with us forever? Will thou draw out thy anger to all generations? Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us mercy, O God. Grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh, them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the ways of his steps.
You know, when uh, reviewing Psalm 85, you know, we talked, talked, I've done some sermons on the Psalms in the past. You kind of want to have some context, right? These, this is not just some book wedged in the middle of the Bible that is not associated with the rest. It's the continuity of Scripture from the beginning to end and Psalm 85. Uh, the context in which it was written in is kind of, kind of not sure, right? It's likely it could have been upon the return from exile in Babylon, an exile from which God judged the sin of the Israelites. Or it could have been written when the Philistines were the oppressors of the Israelites. You know, John Calvin believed it was an, upon return from exile from Babylon, which was, you know, as a result of the Israelites' sin. And Charles Spurgeon, another one of my favorites, kind of believed it was really about the oppression of the Philistines. I don't want to spend too much time on whether Spurgeon or Calvin were correct, but rather I want to focus on the context that God's people experienced tribulation and suffering, often the cost of their sin. And this was a psalm in response, a national prayer hymn. When looking at Psalm 85, you can kind of see four themes or aspects of prayer, which is why today I called the sermon Praying to God for Remembrance, Repentance, Revival, and Restoration. A psalm that is intertwined with God's perfect will on earth and in heaven from the beginning to Christ's eternal reign. Verses 1 through 3. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people, and thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath, and thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. You know, we've heard some excellent expositional preaching the last couple months. You know, particularly from the book of Genesis, uh, from the creation story, uh, the fall of man, the great flood, the Tower of Babel, the Abrahamic covenant, the inner kind of relationships between all the people involved there with one another and with God. Uh, And and it's with that in mind is where our psalmist kind of begins here with remembrance. It is remembrance of the blessings from God to his people. God shows his people favor through withholding of his terrible justified wrath and forgiveness of sin. You know, we've learned in depth the last last few weeks, like the terrible cost of sin, right? You know, from the casting out of Adam and Eve, the terrible, utter, uh, watery remake of the earth during the Great Flood, the division of language uh, that entered the the world through the Tower of Babel. Uh, The greatest terrible cost of sin, though, is the separation from God for all eternity. Being removed from the presence of God for all eternity is the greatest and terrible cost of sin. We know that in the book of Romans, we learn in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans chapter 3. And that through one man, Adam, which we've learned about several weeks ago, sin entered the world. So we know the great and terrible cost of sin, and it's with this remembrance that the, the psalmist begins Psalm 85 by, by addressing that, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land, and thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. We know that this is the Lord's land. As the psalmist declares in verse 1, Thou hast been favorable unto thy land, meaning his land. As the psalmist declares in verse 1, God created it, as we know from Genesis 1. He has chosen it for his people, Genesis 12. He has given it by covenant to his people, Genesis 12 and 17. And was favorable to it by God's conquering of it, which is most of the book of Joshua. Right? You can find various points throughout there. Uh, and God mercifully dealt in it. 
in Exodus 29. The relationship between God and Israel is tied to the land. Throughout the entire Bible, the people of Israel's ability to prosper and hold the land waxes and wanes for thousands of years due to their lack of faith or sins against God and his merciful forgiveness and restoration to it. Spurgeon had this to say in his Treasury of David, and if you've not, it's no surprise a lot of you know I have a deep love for the Psalms. I'll get a little more there later, but Spurgeon's Treasury of David is rich. It's, it's It's worth a read. But this is what he has to say, particularly in light of what I just talked about with Israel and their waxing and waning in God's favor. When downtrodden and oppressed through their sins, the ever merciful one, meaning God, had looked upon them and changed their sad condition, chased away the invaders, and given his people rest. This he had not done once, nor twice, but times without number. It is with this, this knowledge, this experience, you know, the psalmist knew of these things in the past. They'd experienced, whether it be the return of exile and the exile in Babylon, whether it be the oppression of the Philistine, the psalmist knew these things. He knew of God's covenant, he knew of the suffering, and he knew how God had shown favor to his people. And he begins his psalm with remembrance. Remembering God's covenant with his people, his favor by withholding his wrath and forgiving of their sin, the psalmist cries out to the Lord's former mercies in verses 1 through 3, remembering them, lamenting them. And then he transitions into a cry. So like if you, if you look at like a lot of psalms, right, the, kind of a one way I try to review the psalms is psalms tend to look, uh, they, they begin with like often looking backwards. Like here I am in my present condition, here I am in my, pr- or we as a nation, or in our present condition, and it looks backwards. It looks back to who God is, who God was, what God has done in the past, and then, God, I'm in this situation, and I need you to do again. And then that, that answer to what that again may look like is the end. So there's always like this, this kind of tension between here and the present, looking back to what God has done in the past, knowing it can be done, asking for it again, and kind of expecting and spelling out what it should look like in the future. And that's no different here. The psalmist starts off with this remembrance and clearly as we read on in verses 4 through 7, there's a strong implication that their current situation is terrible again. So he says, God, I remember what you've done. God, I remember what we've been through. God, I remember how faithful you are. I remember the covenant you made. I remember how you've shown us favor in the past for withholding your wrath and anger. And I need you to do it again. He begs for salvation and it's likely due to their current circumstances. Verse 4, turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thy anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger for all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that the people may rejoice in thee? Show us mercy, O Lord, and grant us salvation. God, I, we, remember who you are. I, we, remember all you have done. I, we, are grateful for what you have done. You alone are the author of our, my salvation, verse 4. And only you, God, can restore us. Please, God, revive us, like in verse 6. I, we, know we have messed up. We have sinned against you. And you are righteously angry for my, slash, our sin. And if you do it again, I, slash, we, will rejoice And I slash we need to repent. After remembrance in verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6 are a recognition by the psalmist. The need for repentance, revival and restoration. That the circumstances under which the people of Israel were experiencing 
the psalmist cries out of repentance just shine through. If earlier in verse 3 we see that, verses 1 through C, we see that, that sin was, was what caused God's righteous anger and wrath, then it's certainly clear that God's righteous anger and wrath is upon them here because they're asking, Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Like for all generations. So the heart of repentance is there, pleading for revival and restoration. That the circumstances they're experiencing, the recognition in them, their need to turn from them, completely surrender to a loving, covenant, merciful God. In verse 4, the psalmist acknowledges the need to turn from those circumstances, likely a result of their sin to God, the source of salvation. That God's righteous wrath and anger, a result of their sin, was upon them. God, we are not where we need to be. Move us. We, 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 we know we've been kind of like making these promises, maybe delivering on them sometimes, maybe not, not other times. Like, we mean it this time. God, God move us. Move, turn us from these things that we find ourselves in and turn us to you. We need you, God. We cannot do it ourselves. Remove your anger and once again show us your loving kindness that we remembered in verses 1 through 3. God showed favor to Israel by taking away all of his wrath and sin, right? We, you know, the psalmist says in verse 3, um, I don't have it there, sorry, I'll go back. Uh, thank you. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath, thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of anger. And in verse 2, thou hast covered all their sin. Well, then why, John, are they begging for salvation and freeing from their wrath and anger and sin again? Because they did it again. Spoiler alert, right? Here they were. They found themselves like we were incapable of doing all those things we promised last time after we rejoiced, after you celebrated with us in the temple that we did all these things we said we'd do. We, We messed up. We find ourselves in need of you again, God, in need of your mercy Once again, Israel finds themselves having to repent, turning from sin to God. And they knew God demonstrated time and time again his mercy. And the psalmist recognized Israel's need to turn their hearts to God again. Sin results in God's righteous wrath and anger. God does not need turning. Israel needs turning from sin and repent towards God. You know, I'll... I remember it was, it was Cody. You're going to have to forgive me on this one, brother. Several years ago, uh, actually, I think it, we were we were at Vic Frailing's house. It was shortly after um, it was shortly after Dave Weinman, myself, Vic Frailing, and Jason had just been kind of called to be elders in the church, and we're going through some training. And all the elders got together, and the Frailings hosted us. And you know, I'm thinking, man, I'm just I'm just blessed and lucky to be here. Like I've scraped through the door. Like they're going to figure me out. You know. And, and uh, it was such a blessed uh, time, and I think the others that were in attendance that week would agree how, how beautiful the Lord worked in us that weekend and continues to do so. But it was in that, that meeting, in one of our breaks, I get this call. And uh, my son, Cody, uh, many of you know, had climbed the roof at school during a production practice for a play. So he was at school, he was supposed to be practicing, he, you know, they're going to do this, I don't remember what the production is now, um, I think it was one of the Oklahoma Right. So he's supposed to be practicing. And instead of practicing, like he falls under the influence and falls into folly with like the older kids, like the seniors in high school and climbs the roof of the school. I was actually kind of quite impressed because there's like this beam that like leans. There's no ladder that's rusting. There's no like 
like box and steps or anything. Like there's this like pole that's like falling apart, leaning on the school. They shimmy up it and then they have to like go on each other's shoulders to get on the top part. Uh, and then as things would turn out, they got busted, right? Like because when you get a bunch of teenagers running around on a roof, it, you know, when they're supposed to be practicing, you kind of wonder, is that calamity from above, you know, a storm from the Lord or is it teenagers being teenagers? And so while I was mildly impressed there, that's not where, where Cody was really so much as in trouble as he was next. When confronted with authority, the teacher asked him, did you all climb the roof? And my son, just like I have done a thousand times and probably will do another time in my life, looked at you and said, nope, wasn't me. I wasn't there. And all the other kids chime in, oh, what? we weren't up there. We weren't up there at all. And then obviously their life fell apart. And I'm getting this phone call in the middle of an elder meeting thinking I shouldn't be here already. And then my son's rebelling at school and lying to authorities at school. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this just confirms it. You know, so I was so so Cody, the, the biggest thing for me was the lie. Right. Like, so you've done wrong. Be honest about it. Repent of it. You know, we, we talk through that outside of here. And he didn't. He lied about it. So I was justified. Like if the law is, you know, that's one of the commands, you know, don't lie. So don't lie. You just lied. So now I have to aptly apply the law. There has to be punishment for that lie. And I'm justified in my anger of that lie. Like, I was furious. Anybody around me could see it written on my face. Lauren will tell you, I was ready to chew nails. I was ready to bob for hush puppies in a running deep fat fryer. I was so angry. And I was unable to be kind. And for that, Cody, I'm sorry. I've talked to him about it several times since. And I wish I could have been more kind to my son in that moment. Because it's impossible for me to be both aptly applying the law and upholding truth and show love and mercy and kindness in the same instance. And as a broken human being. You know, we, we get to that place and you're like, well, what's next? You know, Cody acknowledged with a heart of repentance his sin. I acknowledge in a heart of repentance my sin. I, I, I prayed for forgiveness. And it's this constant thing, you know, as, as a father, even this morning with Franklin, and maybe I, I struggled with as he dumped peanuts all over the back of the car seat uh, coming through a turn. In my heart, at least, I, was, I had this, this wrath, but I was unable to be loving and kind at that same time. So with that heart of repentance... Needing to turn from sin to God, being revealed, needing revival, needing to be made alive again. It's a spiritual, emotional weightiness that comes with it. When confronting sin, it's hard, it's low. And where do you go from here? How do we move forward from this? We move forward from this terrible, awful feeling of that emotional low of confronting sin that's hard that you can't do alone with hearts of revival and restoration. From God, revival being made alive again, energetic and on fire with, comes with a heart filled with joy. Once revived, once made alive again, once made by a merciful God, the people of Israel would naturally rejoice. Rejoice in turning them from their sin to Him, alive once again in His loving kindness, rather than dead in His wrath. Restored to the favor of God, by God, God turning His people from sin, people with hearts of remembrance, repentance, and revival are now able to rejoice in the restoration to God. You know, Calvin, when he looks at verse four through seven, he called it like the like the plea of the Israelites' deliverance in the long view of their suffering. Right? This was a 
This is a suffering of God's people. It's multi-generational. It's a pendulum that meanders between this, this terrible wrath of God, righteously justified due to their sin and languish, all the way to the other side of God's loving kindness and mercy and peace. Not unlike our own spiritual walks. This is the circumstances in which the Israelites in Psalm 85 find themselves. Let's take a moment to consider this. Unemployment is high. You know, people are homeless. People have died. There's division, isolation, anguish, weariness, fear of wars, broken families, hostility towards neighbors. This is the circumstances of the Israelites in Psalm 85, and it's the circumstances of us here today. Here in Virginia, here in this church, here in the United States. You know, a year ago today, our lives were impacted in many ways. Still, I, I struggle really to even comprehend. Um, I'm, not, I'm not capable of it. I, I, I don't try too much harder because it's overwhelming. But there's not a person here today that has not been impacted in some way by the COVID pandemic. All the, all the other stuff about it aside, just the words COVID pandemic elicits some emotion in every one of us. An emotion that brings up some memory, some experience, some thought, some heart posture. The increase in overdoses and domestic violence, suicides and mental health problems, the closing of businesses, schools and churches, for me were the hardest. Let alone the virus itself. Like I, 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 we, were, we were in Knoxville over the summer uh, and I remember reading a, a headline in the Knoxville News Sentinel, and I know I've got the numbers wrong, but it was something like overdoses in the Knox County, Tennessee, were up like 80 or 90% from the year prior. And it was heartbreaking. You know, I, I looked around to the people in my life that were, that were experiencing things during the lockdown, and, and it was clear so many people were struggling with like the mental anguish and despair and the isolation. It's so hard. You know, one of our elders had some great insights, uh, particularly in light of verse 6 in view of our present circumstances, about what part of your life is languishing or dying or even dead? Relationships with others? Personal or corporate prayer life? Personal study of God's Word? Evangelism? Serving in the church? Stewardship? Maybe even fasting? How you treat one another? How have you been about the business of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind and how have you been about the business of loving your neighbor as yourself? For me, I look at this last year and the circumstances where we were in, and I confess that my prayer life um, has at times languished this past year. I have not been involved in the Wednesday night prayer meeting the way I would have desired. Like, I remember when all that being discussed, I was like, hey, let's do this Wednesday night prayer meeting. And I've not been a part of it the way I, I should have and wanted to, and, and I've languished in that. I've also confessed to you that I have not prayed for my fellow elders at times as I should have. This is the point where you're likely wondering why I called this sermon praying to God for remembrance, repentance, revival, and restoration. You know, is when I was preparing for this sermon a couple weeks ago, I was analyzing my own prayer life, our worldly circumstances, how that impacted my personal spiritual walk, what the Lord might be trying to say to you all today through me, broken as I am. And I realized a couple of things. I realized I was languishing in my prayer life at times. It was cyclical at times. It was not what I desired. I was diminished from some former elevated glory perceived of prayer life that is now just dying because I wasn't feeding it. 
And the Lord used Psalm 85 this past couple weeks to both convict, instruct, and encourage me. It is my prayer that he would do for that for you for you as well today, in spite of me. In our prayers, we would do well, I would do well, to pray for remembrance, repentance, revival, and restoration. Remember, God shows his people favor by withholding terrible righteous anger and forgiving us. God turns us, repent of our sins to one another and to God. Plea as a psalmist for revival in our own hearts, in the hearts of your families, in the hearts of our church, in the hearts of this nation. So we can be restored to God. If you're sitting here this morning believing that Psalm 85 is a hymn for people thousands of years ago, the Israelites, and it has nothing to do with you, or this church, or our country, or the state, or the city of Suffolk, I personally believe you're wrong. I believe that Psalm 85 is a call for prayer for us today here in my life, in my family, in our church, in Virginia, in the U.S. God has shown us favor, has he not? As a people, as families, as a city, as a state, as a country, God has shown us favor. We are his people. We deserve his righteous wrath, for we have sinned against one another and against God. As a nation, we have murdered millions of innocent lives in my lifetime. We have treated our neighbors unjustly as individuals, as organizations, as governments. As a people, we need to remember who God is and what God has done. Repent and plead for revival and restoration to him that we may rejoice in him who turns us as the author of our salvation. We know God hears our cries. We know God speaks to us, and we know we need to listen. We should be hearers and doers of God's word, as James says in chapter 1, and not deceive ourselves. So we should not deceive ourselves. That means we should stop sitting in our isolated little kingdoms we create that I create. Stop fighting cultural, political wars and love God. Show love to your neighbor. Love sacrificially. Love costly. Love deeply. Be merciful. Be honest with yourself, your families, one another here today and following and worshiping with us online. And be honest to God. Pray for our leaders, whether you like them or not, as instructed in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Love those who look different, vote different, speak different. Get out of the comfortable isolation of self-righteousness and pray God mercifully turns me or us to Him. Stop looking at people and withhold the greatest love the world has known because their hair is different. Don't sit there and say, I'm only going to love you because you vote for this party or or you're for that party. Rather than be for things of man, be for things of God. Period. Be about God's business of loving Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And your neighbor. Love as yourself. And in verse 8, when we do that, we will be able to hear God speak. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace unto His people and to His saints. But let them not turn again to folly. The psalmist understood it, and we would do well to do as well today. In praying for remembrance with hearts of repentance, 
seeking revival and restoration, we will hear God speak. As another elder put it, when we sin against God, we're we're at enmity with God. And we need God to speak peace to us. In surrendering to God, all of the noise, divisions, and distractions of this fallen world diminish. And we can hear God speak. And when He does, it is with peace and a warning. We need God to be speaking peace to us. But peace and the tranquility that comes from knowing who we are, children of God... Uh, it gets comfortable, right? There's a security that comes from our faith in a loving God who provides our needs. When we're at peace, it comforts us. The problem in peace alone is the potential dulling effect it has on my or our need for God and the salvation He offers. If I'm sinfully comfortable in God's provision here today, it is easier to backslide. And I, I was just reminded of this this morning. You know, we have a, a, an alarm system. Uh, on our house, and whenever you open the sliding glass door, it goes back sliding door, and and there and I was sitting there it was kind of convicting because I was I was going through a litany of things about that I need to address in my own heart in light of this. I talked about my prayer life, and I was it was just like back sliding door happened at the moment. I was sitting there thinking about this this backsliding piece, right? So, you know, when we're getting comfortable in the house with a security system, you know, I guess I had this this kind of visualization, I guess we will. Um, but that's why the psalmist in verse 8 adds the caution. After a call, uh, um, after having been turned from, sorry, after been having turned to God by God, for the people of God not to turn from God and again to folly. Right? Clearly we can look around today and find many examples in culture and leadership where folly runs rampant. It has become so increasingly commonplace with each new scandalous occurrence so much is that at times it appears to be transitioning where folly is now being applauded as righteous. It is also easy to sit in our own echo chamber of self-righteousness and swing swords of wrath not intended for us to swing at those follies of other. It is so easy to sit back in self-righteousness addressing the speck in someone else's eye and forgetting and ignoring the plank in our own. Where are we languishing and turning to folly in our families, our personal lives, our relationships with one another here, our church, our co-workers, our community, our country? How do we turn from those follies? I believe we return from those follies in praying, praying prayers of remembrance, repentance, revival and restoration as individuals, as families, as church families, as a nation, praying for God to turn us to him and speak peace to us. Pray without ceasing. When was the last time we did that? We know in the gospel that God has made peace with us in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Excuse me. All of which are foreshadowed here in the following verses. Verses 9 through 13. Surely His salvation is nigh them that fear them. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. So so verses 1 through 3 were like in our present circumstances looking back 
on what God has done. And then the few verses that followed afterwards, you know, five through through eight, are like a stop and pause of God in my circumstances. I need that again. Verses nine onward are like that's what that looks like. When God, when you speak peace, here's where it comes. The psalmist longs for the salvation of Israel in these verses. And this, this, this is a, another Spurgeon reference out of Treasury of David I love. It's a little long, so I'm going to make sure I get it right here. Faith knows that a saving God is always near at hand. But only for such is the true rendering to those who fear the Lord and worship Him with holy awe. In the gospel dispensation, this truth is conspicuously illustrated. If to seeking sinners salvation is nigh, it is assuredly very nigh to those who have once enjoyed it and have lost its present enjoyment by their folly. They have to, all they have to do is but to turn unto the Lord again and they shall enjoy it again. We have to not go about by a long round of personal mortifications or spiritual preparations. We may come to the Lord through Jesus Christ just as we did at the first. And He will again receive us into His loving embrace, whether it be a nation under adversity or a single individual under chastisement. The sweet truth before us is rich with encouragement to repentance and renewed holiness that glory may dwell in our land. Yeah, I remember reading and praying about Psalm 80, 85, and I was left kind of, when I hit these verses, it just struck me. Uh, the atoning sacrifice, how the atoning sacrifice of Christ is, the atoning sacrifice of Christ is foreshadowed here in these verses. You know, another elder referred to these verses as, and, and, uh, with regards to God. It's the intersection of mercy and peace on one hand and truth and righteousness on the other. Uh, you know, like how, how can, how can um, mercy and truth be met together at the same time? Righteousness, you know, th- those things seem, seem at odds with each other, right? Like, like when reading the verses, it's clear how all God's favor, peace-speaking love for his people is only on full display at the foot of the cross of salvation. At the same time, his truth and just righteous wrath. How is it possible with all his truth, righteousness, wrath, and peace to be on display at once? You know, if you remember my, my story for earlier about Cody, I could, only be, I could only be angry or I could only be kind. I could only aptly apply the law. If I, you know, I couldn't do one uh, or I couldn't do both at the same time. I couldn't show Cody loving kindness while both upholding the need to apply the law. It's impossible. It's, it's an impossible thing to do. It's, I could not at the same time treat him better than he deserved while being truthful and holding him to what is right and good. I could only be angry, quite frankly. And that, that's a shame, and I'm sorry for that. I could either show mercy and abandon holding him to the law, or I could righteously uphold the law and abandon kindness. Only God can do both, be both, and display both at the same time. He is both just and justifier, as we're told in Romans chapter 3. At the foot of the cross, God is upholding the law perfectly by pouring out His righteous wrath for our sins on His only begotten Son, Jesus, the Son of God, having lived a sinless life, taking on the full measure of God's wrath for our sin, graciously forgiving sinners. You know, we, 
When you look up, you can see the imagery of the cross. If If you have mercy and peace on one side and you have truth and righteousness on the other, righteousness, God in heaven looking down, truth welling up from, all in one thing, all said here in Psalm 85, long before the historical event ever happened. It just speaks to the continuity of Scripture. At the foot of the cross, God is true to His law by Jesus' sacrifice for my sin, for your sin, where mercy, love, and kindness usher in grace, mercy and peace on one side, truth and righteousness on the other. God looking down righteously from heaven through the work of Christ. Through the work of Christ, God turns us, like in verse 4, to Him. He revives us, restores us. Before Christ, the righteousness goes before Him, and He guides us on the narrow path of reconciling us to a loving God in heaven. And you're like, well, you talked about Genesis earlier, and now we're talking about Christ in the New Testament. We're in Psalm 85. Well, if you remember from verse 1, it it referred to Jacob, right? God has made a covenant with His people. This is the God who spared Abram's son, sorry, Abraham's son, Isaac. The God who made his covenant first with Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob. From the beginning to the end, through all of eternity, he is our God. The same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of David, Moses, Solomon, Ruth, Esther, us. God began his redemptive reclaiming process with a single individual, Jesus. He has a plan, a clear purpose through the centuries, and it is expansive and not limited to the nation of Israel, but all nations through the Lord Jesus Christ. We look here, the psalmist only has a foreshadowing. He's in his present circumstances, or she. It says sons, of course, so we'll go with he. But in their present circumstances, they're looking, pleading for God to do what he's done before, knowing that this is what I'm desiring and what it will look like. And we get to see today what it looks like. Amen, right? Like, stop, stop, stop sitting in self-righteous echo chambers and guarding and closing in the safety and the security and the comfort and the peace and tranquility. Like, let us rejoice with hearts of revival and repentance and restoration for that. In Genesis chapter 22, we see from the beginning, God's covenant was never meant for one tribe or nation. And in thy seed, verse 18, shall all the nations... Of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Here again we have Abraham, a loving father, if you recall, maybe not the best husband, right? Offering his son Isaac on the offer and dutifully, so finally Abraham's listening, right? He's doing what's asked of him. He's going to, as crazy as it sounds, sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And in his obedience and faithfulness, an angel of the Lord stops his hand. Now I'm not suggesting anybody go through those things with their families here today. But demonstrating faith and obedience, God made his covenant with Abraham in spite of his previous sins. The promises which will be fulfilled all due to the faith and his obedience in that moment. Who then are the heirs of that covenant promise that's made to Abraham? Isaac, not Ishmael, was the child of promise. Jacob, and not Esau, was the child of promise. And by faith in Christ, we here today are under the new covenant. The atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross has paid our debt. We were bought with a price, with a gift that was freely given. God is for us with all His omnipotence, just ways, mercy, love, and grace. From the beginning, He has had a purpose and a plan, of part of which Psalm 85 demonstrates here today. 
Like we can, I, I see in Psalm 85 clearly, here's a nation much like ours, probably not doing what we should have been doing, who has been shown favor by God. Here's a people who have time and time again, here's an individual like me who time and time again has bounced between the guardrails of God's just wrath and God's mercy. And thank God Christ is there to be my mediator on my behalf because I am terrible apart from him. And we would do well in starting in our own lives and in our families and as a church to start with prayers of remembrance of what God has done through us through Christ. Prayers for repentance in our own hearts so that we, know, so we can repent of the ways we've sinned against others, the way we've sinned against God. With, with pleading for hearts of revival, to be made a fire for the Lord. Be about the business of God and not the distractions of this world. You know, don't store up the things which moth and rust can destroy. You know, store up kingdom things. Right? Pray for God to turn us. Turn us from these follies. Be kept from these follies. Pray to God, turn me from follies. The follies I had this morning on the way here. God loves us beyond measure. To which point he gave that which is good, like in verse 12, with Jesus on the cross. By withholding his terrible righteous anger and wrath from us and pouring it out on Christ, forgiving us of our sins, he has shown us favor. He has shown our land favor, and we have responded as a land poorly. And the way we start, God bless you, is by starting within our own hearts, looking inwardly, praying for God to turn us and stand back and watch a nation move. Christ is a gift that is freely given that cannot be earned. It is by faith through grace we are saved. God is present, and he is the author of our salvation. May he turn us and keep us from folly. Let us pray. God, you have shown us favor. You have shown us favor through Christ, life, death, and resurrection. Paying for the price for our sins, my sin. Lord, turn us to you. Turn us from folly, turn us from distraction, turn us from hate, hostility, division, anger. Turn us to peace and love and truth through you. May we treat our prayers not as 911 calls or emergencies because we've had some circumstance, but may it be a daily relationship that glorifies you. Lord, give us hearts of repentance that plea for revival and restoration, all because we have hearts of remembrance for who you are and what you've done through Christ. Amen.